Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of God. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jacob, if I haven't met you before. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at church, and I'm excited to be able to jump into this passage with you guys this afternoon. I've really been enjoying this series through the book of Ecclesiastes the last three weeks, and the reason I'm enjoying it so much is just because, I guess, uh, of how so much of the themes in this book and the ideas and the truths in this book just apply to so much of our lives And it's been really cool over the last few weeks seeing how this has resonated with people and how it can even apply to something like Jamie's skateboarding is really, really cool. But what we get to today in the verses that Jez just read is is really, I guess, we're taking a step back from just all these kind of vague observations about life and are looking specifically at how it is as people we can come into the presence of God. And if you're reading along with what Jez just read out, you'll have seen that Uh, what it's warning us against is just coming into the house of God and being hasty to speak and say a bunch of words, which is exactly what I'm about to do now. And so I thought it would just be fitting just to pray before we get any further in this, that that we would be praying that we would be be gathering around God's word right now with a sense of awe and humility, being able to listen to what he's got to say and and take it on board in our lives. And I want to pray that even for myself as I I speak now. So, So pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are beyond us in in every way. Uh, You are are not something small to be trifled with, but you are the creator of the world. And it is a humbling thing to to gather around you and try to think about you and learn about you. And I ask that right now, as, as I speak and as we all look at your word, that we would be humble in this um, and that we would be ready to listen We'd be ready to listen to you. That's what this would be. Uh, It would be, above all things, a listening to you and a worship of you as as we listen, Lord. So humble us, have us ready, and I I pray, Lord, that today we will get a bigger sense of your glory uh, and your might. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of what I think is the worst things about growing up is the way that things stop amazing you. Last Sunday, after 11 a.m. church, we were walking down to the park for lunch, and I was walking with Corinne, who's one of the mums here at church, and, uh, and she was pu- pushing a pram with her nearly one-year-old daughter, April, in it. And we were walking along chatting, and, and April was playing with a balloon as, as she was in the pram. And then, uh, all of a sudden, I saw that the balloon had kind of been dropped and was trailing behind, and I got ready to hear the inevitable crying that April would do. Like, I know not much about babies, but I know if they drop their balloons, they cry. And, uh, and so we looked around to see if she was going to be okay. 
And then when, what I saw when we looked at April is that although she didn't have the balloon, she had the bit of plastic, little plastic stick that balloons sometimes come on. I don't know what, if you can imagine it. It's a little bit of plastic, basically. And she was holding it in her hand. And the look on her face was just wide-eyed, just transfiction and wonder at this little, like, two-inch bit of plastic she was holding. And she was just enthralled by it. She didn't even look up at me or at her, at her mum. She was just staring at this bit of plastic. And I just thought, you just wait. <laughs> A day will come when you, you'll realise how small and worthless that is. <laughs> and you too will be unable to be satisfied in the small things. <laughs> and... And I, no, I really, I didn't think that. But I did, I did have, I just, it, just, it reminded me that she has this whole childhood to look forward to of things still being wonderful and amazing. Uh, I, I was re- reflecting back, like when, when I was a kid, just the, the most simple things are exciting and, and wonderful. One of my favourite memories of childhood was just every weekend going with my best friend down to this local park with some bit of bushland and making like a base in the bush. Uh, everyone made a base. And, uh, and it was this sense, though, that we needed a base because at any second, like, monsters could start, like, running through the, the trees or pirates or soldiers or aliens, whatever the day's thing we were imagining was. But we could spend a whole day just, just playing with, with trees and imagining the things around us. It was amazing. And when you're a kid, a hole that you dig in the backyard could be a hole that may lead to buried treasure. Or, or even better still, this hole could actually lead us through to the other side of the world. You'd get pet hermit crabs, these little things, and it was like you had your very own aliens, right? Their claws and their changing shells are absolutely amazing. Watching a fireworks display was like watching the heavens just break open before you. Riding on your dad's shoulders made you a towering giant above all the peasants around you. And then at some point, adulthood comes and it just kicks you in the face. And, And awe and wonder are just suddenly hard to come by. Now, I think as adults, we, ha- we still have a desire for wonder in our life. We still we miss that feeling of the world being this amazing, magical place that we can just wonder at. And I think we find outlets for that, and that's why books like Harry Potter are so successful, because we love just to imagine that there might be something more than just this muggle monotony that we find ourselves in. Or we, we, we find ourselves escaping into shows like Game of Thrones where, where we can just be sure we're going to find something exciting or something awesome. But in real life, we find wonder hard to come by. Our lives are often boring is how we feel about them. Because life is manageable, it's understandable, we know how everything works, we've figured it all out. And even things that used to amaze us, things like sunsets or waves or, or animals, even weird animals like an elephant, just no longer elicit any kind of wonder or awe in us. And so we run to other things to get the same sort of similar feeling, so like sex or drugs or adrenaline, things that will give us kind of a a jolt of excitement for a moment. Or we run to video games to escape the, the boringness of everyday life. But at the end of the day, we find that we are starved of wonder. And Ravi Zacharias, who's a great thinker, says that the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only God is big enough to do that. So as we get into these verses that Jez read for us, my hope for today is simply that we would walk away with a bigger picture and more of a wonder for who God is. Because I think too often, 
uh, I guess we, we ignore the possibility that God is actually the thing we're looking for in our quest for wonder. So with that in mind, I want to get straight into this text. It'll come up on the screen, just the first bit that Jez read. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, these verses that we're reading um, were first written uh, to be read by Israelites 3,000 years ago. And specifically, they're verses about going into the temple, which was the heart of the Jewish religion. The temple is where people went to meet with God. And what you see in this passage, you might leave it on the screen, is that we see the writer speaking to, to, to the people going to the temple, telling them how they should act. And we're going to get to what he's saying about how they should act in a moment. But everything in this passage, what we're seeing here, what's going to come after, all revolves around this one line that holds it together. This line that I've got in bold here, God is in heaven and you are on earth, is the reason for everything else he's saying. The writer is challenging our behavior because of a truth. And this is it. God is in heaven and you are on earth. And so the most important question in coming to this passage is what is meant by this statement? What comes to mind when we read this? God is in heaven and you are on earth. On face value, it looks like it's a statement about location. It's, it looks like it's saying, God is in one place, and we are in another place. And I think for a lot of us, when we just read, God is in heaven, suddenly we have a place in mind. We might be thinking of, a, of, of white fluffy clouds and harps and angels and God walking around with a white beard and white robes like in The Simpsons or in Renaissance art or whatever. We, we see this picture of a location. But fundamentally, this verse is not so much telling us about where God is as it is trying to communicate to us who God is. I'll give you an example, right? If I say the sentence, I'd feel a lot better if Trump was out of the White House, you know straight away as you hear that that I'm not making a statement about where he is geographically. I'm not saying that I feel better if, when Trump travels to other parts of America or if he went out and went for a run or something like that. Right? When I say I'd feel better if Trump wasn't in the White House, you know that the White House is associated with this position of the president. And that's what's being said there. So for us, in 2017 Australia, when we hear God is in heaven, we have this picture of being off in the clouds somewhere. But for the first readers of Ecclesiastes, it draws to mind not where he is, but who he is. That God being in heaven is not a picture of fluffy clouds as much as it is of God's glorious wonder. See, the Bible reveals that there is a fundamental divide within reality. And it's the, the divide between the realm of the creator and the realm of the creation. The, the realm of the creator, heaven, is God and God alone. Only God is uncreated. Everything else, people, planets, um, trees, animals, um, every single one of us, we're on earth, we are created. We are made. And in the realm of creation, there is a huge amount of limitation two major things that limit every single one of us, space and time. The law of physics dictate that I cannot both be here and over there. I'm one or the other. We're confined by space and we're confined by time. I cannot just like flicker back between 10 years ago and now, 10 years from now at my will. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this thing called time. And what's more, we are all limited 
by our experience being confined to really what goes on inside our minds, inside our brains. That we, we're not capable of infinite knowledge. We cannot know everything. We cannot know everything about the past. We cannot know really anything about the future. We're limited. But God, the creator in heaven, is set apart from these limitations. God is not limited by space and time and, and knowledge in the way that we are. And the, and the Bible has a word for this, for this sense that God is being set apart, that he is in a league of his own, and that word is holy. And so when we sing songs and we sing holy, 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 we're singing, we're singing that God is set apart, that he is different, that he's other to us, that he is not like us. He's not like us in all of our limitation that we have. And what's more, we're singing God is set apart, God is different to us, not just in terms of these things of space and time, but he's different to us in his perfection. The Bible is clear that it's only in our realm that we have all these imperfections and things going wrong. Whereas God is perfect in his love, he is perfect in his knowledge, he's perfect in his power. He's set apart. He is holy. And there's another word that the Bible uses to describe God really frequently and, and, and really only uses to describe God, and that is his glory. The word glory means God's weightiness. We're talking about the sheer weight of the majesty of his manifold power. And it is God's glory. This is the thing that is called to mind when we talk of standing in awe or worshipping him. The Bible tries to help us understand a bit about God's glory. It says things like, the sky and the stars declare the glory of God. And what that's kind of saying is that when you go outside and you look up at the night sky and you see these, these trillions of stars above you, in doing that we see an aspect of who God is. And really, it's an aspect of just how, how amazing and powerful and, and, and marvelous he must be. Think of the universe with the trillions of stars, light years and light years across. Think of the one who, how, how, how big the one who made this must be. Scientists tell us that for the Big Bang to have occurred, um, that the universe would have had to start from a singularity of 40 billion degrees. So as a point of reference, just take one of those hot days you know, from a few weeks ago when you kept having zuper-dupers and you still felt hot, um, and times that by a billion, and think of who is the one that can command such power. It's, it, it's giving us this sense, and not just in the fact that the universe had to be created, but in the fact that the universe is sustained, that God in his hand holds the whole universe together. At any given point in time, we exist because of him. And it shows us something about his glory, his, what, what worth he is, what we can wonder at. But the stars are not the glory of God. They show us the glory of God, but they are not it. The glory of God is something that we cannot see in the same way that we see the stars. The glory of God is something that humans can't see. In the Bible, you see these accounts of people getting close to God and they all fall down on their face or they go blind or they pass out or, or whatever goes on or people die because the glory of God is just so beyond what we're capable of. And I sat at my desk this week trying to think, how do I explain the glory of God? How do I explain what it's like? And, and I just couldn't do it. And I've even crossed out in my notes some attempts to do it. Like, at the end of the day, the glory of God is indescribable. We're talking about a being that is not in creation the way that we are. We're talking about a being that, that, is in, that operates on the scales of infinites and eternities, which are these things that our minds cannot even wrap themselves around who is perfect, when everything we know is, is flawed. That's what God is like. 
And I think this truth is an amazing truth because it speaks into what we know that there has to be more to life. That it means there is something in reality that, that is amazing, that isn't, isn't boring or dull or understood or smaller than us. No, there is a God out there who is bigger and more wondrous than we could ever imagine. And the only proper response is to stand in awe of him. So with that context around what is meant with this line, God is in heaven and we are on earth, let's look again at what, at what the teacher writes here. So from verse 1 again, it'll come up on the screen. I'm going to read a bit longer this time. And what we're going to see here is that we just want to shrink God down to something manageable. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Now, as we look at that passage up on the screen there, it's actually a confusing little passage because the things that he speaks about here are not things that on their own are outright evil. He talks about offering sacrifices, which is something the Jews were commanded to do as part of their worship. He talks about talking to God or at least around God, which again is something that is allowed through prayer and just the fact that we're allowed to talk. Uh, and he talks about paying vows, which again at different points in the Bible is a good and valid thing to do. And yet three times this behavior is called foolish. Three times we're called foolish. What makes a person's sacrifice or, or speech or vows foolish? Well, I think what makes them foolish is in relation to what we've just heard about God being on heaven and us being on earth is when they're done in a way that ignores the reality that God is big and we are small. So what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying in these verses to the temple worshiper is that it is possible to speak to God or about God in a way that, that plays him down. The display is that we do not actually believe that he is the creator and we are the creation. That it is possible to offer a sacrifice to God, not out of some humble sense that we are in need and, we, and as a reminder of our moral bankruptcy before God, but out of a sense of we're going to do something so we can control God and, and kind of own him in a way. It's possible to offer a vow that we have no intention of keeping because we think that all that really matters to God is lip service and saying the right thing and that at the end of the day, there is not a God in heaven who is going to hold us account to what we say. What makes us foolish is trying to maintain the appearance of worship while really bringing God down into something that we can stand over and domesticate. And it's foolish. I had a friend in high school. His name was Serge. And he was heaps into reptiles. He was basically a mini Steve Irwin. And he was actually the kid in... Crocodile Dundee in LA. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie. I don't even know if I've seen it, but I knew he was in it. He's the main kid. And he got the role in the movie because he was actually heaps into, into lizards and snakes and stuff. And we went on this hike in year 10, uh, like a school camp, and it was like a week long. And I don't remember nearly anything from the camp, but I do remember one night, which was the night that we pitched camp on the top of Mount Durris. Now, you've never heard of Mount Durris. It's not a particularly high mountain. It's down near Batemans Bay. But I'm never going to forget Mount Durris because no exaggeration, it was covered in snakes. Um, sometimes you might embellish a little bit of a story to make it a good story, but I, I honestly, I saw like 
20 to 25 snakes in one night on Mount Darius. And it was terrifying. We had to go and walk for water. And the camp leader guide guy said, you can only go in a group of four and you have to have four torches all pointing different directions as you walk in formation. And you have to make big stomps so they get out of your way so you don't get bitten by a snake when you're going to get water. And, um, and so most of us were terrified and we just spent the night in our tents, zipped up, uh, just trying not to get any snakes in, in, our, in our tents. Except for Serge. Uh, he, was, he was out and about taming snakes. He was picking snakes up that he assured us weren't venomous and having them wrap around his arms, but, which was weird. But the terrifying thing was he was picking up snakes that he told us were venomous, and they were, red belly back snakes, eastern brown snakes, and he was picking them up and he was swinging them around and he was throwing them. And this is a year 10 kid. And I remember the, the camp leader um, who was like... 40 or whatever, and a bunch of year 10 kids, and he sees this year 10 kid pick up, pick up a brown snake and swing it, and he just didn't know what to do. He, didn't, like, he wasn't trained in how to deal with that kind of situation. <laughs> but, but I was looking at, at this guy, and, and I was like, this is a crazy amount of confidence to be having with something so deadly. And you see in the news, right, all the time, don't you, people that, that try to have pets, which are bears and lions and tigers and boa constrictors and stuff, and then get attacked by them and often killed. And if they're not killed, they act surprised that it happened. I read a story like of a lady who uh, got mauled by her pet bear because when she went into the cage to feed it dog food, she turned her back and attacked her. And she wrote in the thing, oh, you know, it, it's always, it was so uncharacteristic, it's always been so loving. Like, you're feeding a bear dog food in a cage. Like, what was going to happen? But in a way, this is what we do with God. We've got this God who made the universe, and our impulse is to bring him down to something that we can stand over or control. We try to bring the creator down into the realm of creation. I want to show you two common ways we do this. This isn't some problem for 3,000 years ago Israelites in a temple. This is a problem for every single person in this room, because this is what we do to God. And for Christians, one of the most obvious ways this happens is with what's known as the prosperity gospel, which is this idea that if you serve God enough, then he will reward you by giving you money and good relationship and success and career and, and good bill of health, which is, which is crazy because that's not how God works. He's not some vending machine you can put a coin in and then you get, get what you want out. But sometimes I think that maybe we think, oh, that's just a problem for people in these bad churches where they preach the wrong thing, but we're in a good church and this is now issue. But how often do we do the same thing in subtler ways? We might admit that God doesn't promise us riches or a perfect bill of health, but, but how often do we get frustrated when we feel like God isn't doing things the way we want him to? It shows that we do have an expectation that, that God really exists to satisfy our, need, our needs. He exists to give us the life that we want for ourselves. Or, or, or just how, how often do we come to the Bible with our own well-being in focus? Um, the reason that we're working through the whole Bible in a year is be and the reason that I'm finding it so hard to, to stick at it is because naturally when we come to the Bible, we want it to be about us. Um, we want it to speak into the exact bit of life and the exact season we're going on in the moment. I want my Bible to tell me what I should, what I should do for work or, or where I should live or if I'm feeling anxious, I want it to speak into my anxiety or into my depression or, or whatever I'm going through at the moment. I need it to talk to me. And when it doesn't, we say it's, we, we get bored of it and we push it away and we don't do it. 
Or think about when we come to church on a Sunday and at the end of the day we might get asked, oh, how is church? How often is the, the way that we work out the answer to that question based upon our experience and what we get out of it? Is it based on, on the conversations that we had and how, how helpful we found them or how interesting we found the sermon or how, how, what quality we thought the music was and how that satisfied it? How often do we make ourselves the center? And the question of did we have any kind of meaningful encounter with God isn't even in there. Or think about how quickly we just we turn to heartless religion. That, we, that the way we operate with things like going to church, reading the Bible, praying, serving, is just a way to pacify God. As though our acts of service uh, and, our, and our worship was like a piece of meat we're throwing to a hungry lion so that he's calmed down and doesn't disturb us for the rest of the week. Whereas at the end of the day, what we want to do is go on and live our lives like God isn't there at all. We just try to domesticate him, keep him calm, keep him tame. We domesticate God when we make him an instrument to achieving our own ends. And it's foolish. But there's another way that I think we often bring God down, and that is to turn him into an idea. The enlightenment of the 18th century changed how Western humanity views the world. And throughout most of history... Most people in most cultures have had a huge part of their life that they would happily call the realm of mystery. So how a baby is formed in the womb, why does it rain, what, what are stars, um, how do our brains work, like these things, were, no one had any idea. This is all just mystery. And so you get up and every day everything was mysterious and confusing around you. And then in the Enlightenment, things changed. There was the rise of the scientific method that said we've actually got this means and this procedure for standing over things and working out and arriving at truth about how stuff works through observing, observing and testing and recording. There's the rise of, of rationalism, which says that the human mind is capable of arriving at truth through the implementation of logic. And there's an increased freedom for people to go out and just um, ignore all of the the kind of established truths of the day and find their own way. And these things together led to the, the general belief that humanity, with enough time and enough reason and enough freedom, will eventually figure everything out. We'll just, we, it's just a matter of time and there will be nothing left unknown. And this has impacted the way that we view the world, whether we know it or not. Because throughout our whole lives we've been taught to do this. In maths, we're taught to stand over an equation and as we look over it, to apply the laws of arithmetic and we will arrive at the sum, at the answer. In science, we stand over an experiment as the ones conducting it, recording it, observing it, deciding on it, hypothesizing it, and as we stand over whatever it is we're looking at, we will arrive at the answer. In literature and in art, we're told to stand over someone's work and, and pull it apart, dissect it, dig at it, question it, critique it, work out what they're getting at. In philosophy, we hear an idea, and again, we stand over it, and we debate it, and we argue it. And we get so used to arriving at truth by standing over things, that when we get to God, that's just our default setting, to stand over him. And so we try to figure him out, or prove him, or disprove him, or sum him up, or summarize him. Summarize him. And in doing this, we forget that he is in heaven, and we are on earth. And what we're doing is setting ourselves an impossible task. To apply science and logic to creation, which is also, like us, bound to, by space and time, makes sense. But to speak of proving God, who is in a realm outside of our experience, is nonsense. To think we can prove God like we can prove a chemical reaction is madness. To think we can rationalize God in the way that we rationalize an argument 
is, is crazy. And yet that's what we do. We need to remember that there is still a realm that is mysterious, that no amount of science or human thought will ever be able to get into, that even if we knew everything there was to know about creation, that wouldn't get us any closer to knowing everything there is about God. To reduce God to anything that we stand over, Ecclesiastes said, is the work of a fool. So if that's the case, how are we to respond to God? What we see in this passage is the way to approach God is with humility. In fact, the only posture by which anyone can enter the presence of God is a humble posture. The actual language that the book of Ecclesiastes uses is the language of fear. The end says, God is the one you must fear. And throughout the Bible, this language of fear is used. Another book uh, in a similar part of the Bible, Proverbs, says that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which makes sense of what we've read, right? If, if the heart of what it means to be a fool is to not right-size God and bring him down and think he's small, then the heart of wisdom is to to begin with knowing that God is just so much bigger. You want to have wisdom, you've got to start with knowing that. And so we fear him. And what does it mean to fear God? On one level, fear, fear can mean to be terrified. And I'm not going to say that fearing God should never mean being terrified of him. There is a time and a place to be absolutely terrified and mortified at the prospect of God being there. And that is if God is your enemy. If you're going through life with no regard for who God is, no love for him, no, no desire to be near him, and in fact, an overt rejection of him and rebellion of him, to be terrified of him makes perfect sense because he's the one who has the power to bring about your destruction. It makes sense to be terrified. Unless we have some reason to be confident that he will not destroy us, then to be terrified is exactly what fearing God should look like. Now, the joy of Christianity is knowing that in Jesus and only in Jesus, we can find a certain hope that we won't be destroyed. Jesus says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so if, if, if that's you, this is, that's where you need to, to dwell on for the rest of this. Ignore everything else I say. What you need to figure out if Jesus is, is true. Because he is the only one that can bring any reason not to be terrified of God. But for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we don't need to be terrified of God. But we do still need to fear him. Because the fear of God is deeper than just terror. It's much deeper than that. There is, there is a fear of God that looks a lot more like humility. In fact, there's a proverb that says, humility is the fear of the Lord. And this passage says, that, that fear looks like humbly coming to God, coming to God to listen, not to stand over him or instruct him, but to listen. And, and God says at, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Bible, that this is the only way you can get near him. This is what he actually looks for in, in what true worship is. I'll just show you one time he does that. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, he's talking about himself as the Creator, and he says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Here is the creator of the universe saying, he's looking out at people, who's he going to look to? It's those who are humble, those who know who he is and who they are. 
God demands to be right-sized. There's no space for false confidence with him. To, to come before him confident in yourself is crazy. And in fact, you miss out. Jesus puts this concept into an illustration for us in, in Luke 18. He tells the story of two fictional men going into the temple to embody these two kinds of ideas. And in Luke 18, it'll be on the screen, we see, we see Jesus tell this story. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, Jesus is just putting into a, into a story what we're reading here in Ecclesiastes. That coming into the presence of God full of presumption and confidence, thinking that you are bigger than him and that you can manipulate him just by giving him a tenth of all you have or um, whatever else. He said fasting twice a week. But, what, but really, to experience God, the one who really gets it here is the one who is humble. The one who comes forward, not, not putting himself forward, but just recognizing that God is in heaven and he is on earth. And this matters because, and this matters for us because if we do not approach God with, humi- with humility, we will not actually experience His glory. Uh, I'm not heaps into cooking shows. Um, in fact, I'm not at all into cooking shows. But the, the, the only one that I don't mind watching when it comes on, and even if I'm feeling bored, I'll even go onto YouTube and, and search up some scenes from, is uh, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Now, if you haven't seen this show, I think most people have seen it, the idea is that Gordon Ramsay, who's this foul-mouthed chef, but is also quite successful and famous, uh, goes into struggling restaurants and tries to turn them around. And if you've seen the show, you'll know the moments you're waiting for, the the moments that make the show great, is when the the chefs or the owners or, or whoever can't hack that they've got a problem. So Gordon Ramsay will point out, you know, that they've, they've overcooked a certain meal or they're doing it wrong, and then the chef will be like, no, nah, that's right, that's how we do it. And then he just explodes, right? It's this amazing scene. You get these, these tirades of just insults and witty comments. It's fascinating stuff. But, but the irony when you watch it is, right, these, these are people who, whose businesses are just rubbish. No one's rocking up. They've got bad reviews. They're failing in every way. And they have an opportunity to have someone come in who actually knows what he's doing, who's been successful, who can identify problems. And yet in nearly every episode, you see pride. People aren't willing to accept the help that they could get. They've got this unique opportunity to be helped, and yet they they stand up confident in themselves and say, no. Now, I'm not saying that that God and Gordon Ramsay are similar, but I'm saying that to go... Because they're not. But I'm saying, if we, if we don't think we've got need, if we think we've got it all sorted in ourselves, that somehow we're talking to God as an equal when we come to him, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out. We don't experience God when, we, when we're not open to God being so much bigger than we could ever imagine. 
And I want to show you how this applies to one group of people here in particular, which is those of you who are looking for God. And, and I'm sure some of you here today are trying to find God. Perhaps you've been, you're right now looking into Christianity for the very first time, and you're trying to figure out if it's true, and you're just learning and watching, and maybe you've got some sense that there's more out there, or you know someone in your life that seems to have some experience of God or knowledge of God that you don't have but you want it, and so you're trying to figure that out. And I'm sure there's some of you here, but I'm sure there's also another big group of people here, of those of you who are looking for God, but you've been around for ages. And, and maybe you've even been at church your whole life. And you may have even had times in your life where you've walked with God in intimacy, and you know your Bible well, and you might seem to have it all together. But right now, you're in a season of what you'd maybe call just spiritual dryness or, or doubt, where deep down, you feel like something is missing. And maybe it's so bad that you've even thought about throwing it in, or maybe you've thrown it in at some point, and being at City Light today is trying to give it another shot. But desperately, what you want is to see God. And, and you feel that if He is there, He's hidden, and no matter what you do, you can't make it click. And there might be some uncertainties about why some things in the world are the way they are or some uncertainties about parts of the Bible that you find hard to get your head around or how it fits with science or something like that. But at the end of the day, you haven't experienced God as real or you're not right now experiencing God as real. And if you could just see God, know He's there, know that He loves you, all the things about these other questions you have would just fall into place. And there's nothing more than you want than for God just to pull back the curtains and show you himself. And maybe you've even laid in bed at night and you've, and you've said, look, God, if you're there, just say something. If there's no one else here, just say something. Write something on my wall, perhaps. Just, just, just show me you if you're there. That's all I ask. Or maybe you've just spent just agonizing amounts of time reading books and trying to solve questions of, can you for sure 100% trust the Bible? Did Jesus 100% come back from the dead? Um, is, there, is there a rational way to approach Christianity in, in, a, in a postmodern world? All of these questions you might have just wrestled over again and again and again, trying to list out the evidences. And no matter how much you do it, you just don't seem to get any closer. And it's the worst feeling because you know that whether or not God is real and whether or not you can know him is the most important question there is and you just can't seem to figure it out. And so my question is, what is the reality, what is the implication of the reality we're looking at today for you? Why are we so worn out in our searching? And, and on one level, I actually think if this is you, you and you're worn out in looking, you're at an advantage because you're already humbled in that because you know that you can't do it. You know you can't find it. You're like the tax collector in the, in the parable. You come into God just with nothing left to offer, asking for nothing but, but mercy. But the reason I think we're often so worn out is that fundamentally in our searching, our inclination is to do it in a way that stands over God. And so the cry of, I would just believe if you, X, Y, Z, if you spoke to me, if you wrote your name in the clouds, if you did this thing in my life tomorrow, if I got this job, I'll just know you're there, whatever. Any of these things is, is you saying that you have the right to dictate how God reveals himself. It's a standing over God. It's saying, this is how I would do it. You have to follow suit. Or as we read and study and delve into books and arguments, again, it's this sense that if God is real, I have to be able to fit it into my mind. 
I have to arrive at the truth. I have to decide it's right. And again, it's, it's not an act of humility, it's an act of pride. We need to stop and just let God be God. That's why we need to wonder. We need just to be able to go, be okay and go to sleep at night without having every single thing figured out. We need to remember that that's actually what you'd expect to happen if you're dealing with a God who is completely other to us. Humility is accepting that I cannot make God reveal himself in any way that I desire. Only he can choose how he reveals himself. And the wonderful thing is that he has chosen to reveal himself. Christianity is the belief that God the Creator, holy and glorious, actually came from heaven, from this realm of the Creator, into the realm of the creation. That Jesus, as a man, was at the same time God. And that if you see Jesus, you see God. This is what Christianity is built upon. The way you know God is through Jesus. I've got this little story that in John's Gospel that I find funny and helpful. Um, Philip says, it's just this question, of all the things people say to Jesus that are ridiculous, this is up there. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. As in like, as if he's playing it down. Like when you don't say, oh, all I'm asking for is this. But he's saying, show us the Father. He's, he's saying to Jesus, split the heavens open and that'll, that'll satisfy him, that'll be enough. Like it's, it's crazy what he's asking. But Jesus' response is this. And this is what reveals so much about who Jesus thought he was and what Jesus said about himself. He says, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, this inclination to wanting more or wanting God to appear in our way isn't new for now. Even Jesus' close disciples wanted it. They wanted something that he wasn't choosing to give them. Jesus is God's means of making himself known. The way to know God isn't in arguments or rituals or in experiences or, or anything else. It's in Jesus. And part of fearing God and knowing that he's in heaven and we're on earth is having the humility to accept his way of revealing himself to us. And, and there is humility. You have to humble yourself to the fact that God might be bigger than you are to accept the fact that we're not capable of proving God. And that, in fact, the only way to know God is to know Jesus. And the only way to really know Jesus is to read about him in a book that's 2,000 years old. And you might say, that's not how I would have done it. And at the end of the day, no one cares how you would have done it. <laughs> like, you might say you don't get it, and that's, that's okay. That's what, you, that's what you'd expect. God has chosen a way of doing things. The God who made the universe has chosen a way of doing things. And at the end of the day, all that's left for us to do is accept it. That he said, if you read the Bible and you look at Jesus, you're seeing me. We'll never come to know God if we try to put him in a box or turn him into an instrument for our own desires or our own wills or stand over him like an idea. So the challenge for the seeker is this, to, to, to practice reading the Bible and not just standing over it with any notion that you're going to fit all of God into your brain. To read the Bible, not standing over it, critiquing it and questioning it, arguing with it, but just reading it. And what we're told is that when we read the Bible and we see Jesus and his love and his compassion and his mercy and his power... What we're seeing is God. And there's no guarantee that's going to come along with some magic tingly feelings or something like that when, when it happens. But when you read of Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see God. 
And you might still want to go and pursue getting questions answered about how the Bible fits with science or, or if you can trust it or not, and, and still use your minds and still think. I'm not saying just turn your brains off, but, but none of these things are going to leave you to beholding the glory of God the way that looking at Jesus will. In going to Jesus, we behold the glory of God. Now, this is a difficult skill to practice. And as a church, I think we want to keep helping each other in this. We are creatures helping other creatures try to see their creator. And so if you're, if you're investigating Christianity and you need help to do this, to help to try to see Jesus and understand him, we run a course called Christianity Explored, which is specifically for you as someone who's looking into this stuff, who just wants help to, to make sense of the Bible and to maybe understand what Jesus is on about. And, and, and our trust is that as we do that, and as some of you have had in this church, when you do that, you, you encounter God. But if you're a part of this church and you're still struggling with this stuff, don't, don't struggle with it alone. Come and speak to, to me or to Gab or Jez or your community group leader or someone because we want to we be helping each other with this, helping each other be humble, helping each other find awe and wonder in God. So we're going to have a time of worship now where Esther and the band are going to come and lead us in, in just reflecting and, and singing about God and his holiness and his glory. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray and, and, and pray God to be with us in that. And then there's also going to be a time of reflection, which we do every week, but, but I ask that you use it to reflect of where in your life are you standing over God, using him for your ends, belittling him, turning religion into a way of controlling him, turning your Bible reading into just something about you, overthinking God and trying to sum him up, whatever it is, reflect on that, repent of it and pray. But I'm going to lead us in prayer now, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, uh, we come before you as humble people who, who, know, who know little of, of who you are, who don't understand what it means for you to be eternal, who don't understand what it means for you to be infinite. Um, who, who are on this earth as people with finite minds and experiences. And we just pray that we'd have a sense of humility when we, when we come to you and a sense of wonder. Lord, we thank you that you're real and that it means that our lives aren't these boring, just straight lines of things that we can stand over and then we die, but that, that because you're real, there is a, a wonderful element to reality. And we thank you that we can encounter you and we thank you that you've chosen not to stay far off, but to come near to us in Jesus. And we just pray that we would have the humility to accept you on your terms. We pray that you would make us humble. We pray that you would show us that you would be true to your word. That when, when you say that if we see Jesus, we see you. We pray you would show us yourself in him. Lord, and we, and we just pray, even, even as we go out this week, that we would be filled with wonder and fear at the scope of how amazing you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.